really bad cold and cough and not doing really well, so uh, if we could send up some additional prayers on Sharon's behalf, I'm sure she would much appreciate that. Well, we have Passover coming up soon. This is the first day of the new month, a time of examination that we begin on ourselves prior to Passover. Uh, we do have Passover Day falling on Friday, so Thursday evening Passover. So Passover Day is on a Friday. And... Uh, I'm thinking I would like to have us meet up in Zion on Passover Day. Uh, Twenty-three years ago, on Passover Day, is when God very clearly showed that Zion and this area is the most important place on earth. Uh, that vision came on Passover afternoon. Uh, we kept the Passover the night before and we're not keeping it as a Sabbath at that time, but God knew it was. <clears throat> and it was on Passover day that he delivered that message. So I, I think that marks Passover in this end time as uh, a very, very important uh, day in our history and what is coming. So uh, rather than hopefully meeting there in the little park where we usually do. I'm going to see if I can get us up into Tanner Amphitheater where we kept the feast for several years and uh, and kept Passover for a while as well. I don't know that we need to be in the building, uh, dark and cool in there, but if we could get out and use the amphitheater itself, uh, that could be really, really nice and then we'd be away from everybody and all to ourselves. So uh, we'll plan that. I think uh, probably to meet uh, 1 or 2 o'clock, I, I want to go up there and see where the sun is about 1 o'clock. That might be a little early, but by 2 it would be kind of over behind us if we were in the stands there. We tried having services out there in the morning during one feast, and the sun was right in your face. You couldn't read, and it was a very, very difficult situation. But uh, if we wait and it gets a little behind us, then uh, that should be okay for everybody, the speaker. And uh, and he's usually looking down anyway, so maybe that won't be too much of a problem. We'll figure it out, but uh, I'll try to get us in there. And you can drive right up to it so it's not too difficult for those who have trouble getting in and out to uh, to get into the amphitheater itself. <clears throat> and... Uh, probably we'll do that instead of regular potluck like we would normally have on that day. We could have maybe more picnic style. Uh, I'll let you gals figure the logistics on that or what's the best way to go about it to, to have some food. But if we could have more, more of a picnic style up there instead of having places to heat things up as we do here, it might go a little easier. But we can haul some tables up if necessary and and so on to uh, to make sure that can happen. Anyway, that's uh, we'll we'll announce later whether it'll be at one or at two o'clock. But uh, the days will be getting a little longer, and even two wouldn't be bad up there for 
Passover day. And during uh, the Passover itself, the, <clears throat> on Sunday, we only have just the one Sunday during uh, the seven days of unleavened bread. We're planning on having a, a barbecue out here, maybe steaks and and all the trimmings and so on, an outdoor barbecue instead of a potluck. Well, let's see, we wouldn't have a potluck on Sunday anyway, but a barbecue in early afternoon because we'll have the service that evening. Anyway, that's kind of some of the uh, the plans for Passover itself. So let's get back to God's Word. Uh, as you know, we went through 1 Corinthians where he handled a lot of problems uh, as well as some doctrinal issues and some inspiration. And 2 Corinthians then, of course, is a follow-up uh, letter. We got into it just barely last week. Uh, but as a matter of review, he started out by showing that they would have sufferings and tribulations and difficulties. But Christ is always there to help us, to deliver us, to strengthen us in whatever our troubles might be. And then he mentions on down in verses 8, 9, 10 through there that uh, he and the party that was with him had even been uh, threatened to the point of death and that God had delivered them from that imminent danger and would continue, he says, he will yet deliver us at the end of verse 10. So uh, there were serious difficulties back then, just as we're poised today to get into serious difficulties. A, Satan and all his minions will hate anyone who has the Spirit of God, and they can see the light of God's Spirit in us. Uh it blinds their eyes, they don't like it, they hate it, and they will do everything they can to get rid of us. Uh, when Satan's cast down, those who are not being protected, he will come after and probably kill all, if, nearly all, if not all, in the tribulation who have the Spirit of God as martyrs for the kingdom and hopefully not having been part of that 10% who respond and who are gathered, uh, they will repent in time to be a part of the kingdom of God, even as Zechariah seems to indicate many will. So we're headed into serious times, as we well know, and if you're reading the news much, especially alternative news, you find that Christians are under fire around the world, and even in New Zealand and America and, and uh, Britain and Canada and Sweden and some of these Israelite countries, uh, they're putting Islam ahead of Christianity. And uh, they're putting people in jail for mentioning Christ, and they're firing teachers in some cases in this country. And in New Zealand, the prime minister made everybody listen to a two-minute call to prayer by the Muslims. So they are very quickly turning it over to the Muslims and from what I've been reading, the elite plan to use New Zealand as their headquarters because it's so far removed from most of the trouble that will come and is a beautiful, productive area. So I, I think it's very interesting to watch what's happening uh, very quickly now in front of our eyes. But God will deliver us, he says. He told us we'd come out here, uh, give up our homes, our families, and everything that we would be delivered here. So even as Paul was delivered from death, so will we be. Let's go down to verse 11 where we left off. 
you also helping together by prayer for us. So he says, God's delivering us, but we also need your prayers for God's intercession. <clears throat> that for the gift bestowed upon us by the means of many persons' thanks may be given by many on our behalf. Now, God had bestowed a gift of truth. He had bestowed the opportunity to go out and teach and preach Christ and ran into a great deal of trouble as a result of that, but the prayers helped. Now, we might sometimes think our prayers don't mean much, but they really, really do. I'll recount the story of Peter and, was it John? Peter and James? Peter and John? Anyway, Peter for sure was in jail. And uh, all the people in that area had gotten together in a house, probably where they normally met, and uh, were praying for Peter's deliverance. And then God sprung him out of prison, maybe a great deal, in response to those prayers. So he came to the house where they were praying, and the young girl says, Don't bother us, we're praying for Peter, he's in jail. I don't know if it was dark and she didn't recognize him or what, but uh, he had been sprung and they were in there still praying. So uh, God did hear their prayers and did answer their prayers. I'm sure Peter in jail was also giving up some pretty passionate prayers as well. But our prayers together do accomplish something. What does he say there in James the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. So, if we are doing our best to be righteous, and we pray in faith, God says that it has an impact on Him, and avails much in His sight. So, uh, don't think your prayers don't mean anything. Maybe sometimes it seems like you're praying to the ceiling, but uh, God hears. He doesn't hear sinners, but he hears those who have been absolved from sin, who have the sacrifice of Christ removing their sins on a daily basis. Those he hears. So he hears you. He hears us. And we certainly need deliverance. No doubt about it. Anyway, verse 12, for our rejoicing is this, the testimony of our conscience that in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God, we have, have had our conduct in the world and more abundantly toward you. So he says we're simply trying to live according to the gospel of Christ with godly sincerity, and not with all the wisdom of the world, but simple, the knowledge of God. The simplicity of Christ, if you will, as it's called at another place. And by His good mercy toward us, uh, we can have our conduct out in the world, be godly, and then even more abundantly toward those in the church. So he was fighting battles out in the world and trying to obey God and preach. 
And then he was fighting battles within the church of people who would not listen or rebelled or chose another minister or whatever they did uh, as per the first chapter of 1 Corinthians itself. For we write none other than thing, no, none other things to you than what you read or acknowledge. And I trust you shall acknowledge even to the end. He says, listen carefully to what we're saying. We're not saying anything different than what you've been hearing. But there were those who purported to be Paul were taking, uh, his name and trying to put stuff over on the church using his name to do it. We didn't have email and text and telephone and all those things in those days. And it could be months and months before you got news from another church area. So all kinds of stuff could go on that the ministry didn't know about till three, four, five, six months later, which made it very, very difficult to to manage and to oversee the churches. But my, he wrote the first letter, then he wrote the second one, no telling how much later, because it had to go to Corinth and then percolate for a while, and then the results of the letter, what they did or didn't do as a result of it, began to come clear, and it got all the way back to him, so then he wrote another letter, which took a long time to get back to them. So the passage of time can be very difficult to deal with when there's just simply no way to communicate other than through prayer. Now, that's a good thing in that sense, is it not? That you may not know what's going on over there, but God does. And you can pray to Him over here, and He can answer over there. I just asked you to pray for Sharon. She's 1,500 or more miles away, close to 2,000 probably. And... uh your prayer here can go up to the Father and down to her and help her. So they did have some help that is beyond our modern communication, certainly, but it still was very difficult to deal with the churches under those circumstances. So, verse 13 then, for we write, well, I already read that, uh, don't acknowledge anything that you see or hear, except unless you're sure it came from us. As also you have acknowledged us in part, that we are your rejoicing. Some of them weren't fully convinced. Uh, they, they needed work yet. You've acknowledged us in part, that we are your rejoicing. Uh, they were bringing news of the kingdom of God and of Christ himself, which is a matter for rejoicing. So they were bringing them things that should have given them hope and inspiration and joy uh, in that knowledge of why we're on this earth. Even as you also are ours in the day of the Lord Jesus or Emmanuel. And in this confidence, I was minded to come to you before that you might have a second benefit. I wanted to, to come. I've been there sometime in the past, and I wanted to bring the benefit of what I know and my experience and the things I can tell you to you again. But he hadn't been able to. 
and to pass by you into Macedonia, and to come again out of Macedonia to you, and of you to be brought on my way toward Judea. So he wanted to see them. He had plans to, but he was having difficult uh, times and trouble where he was. When I therefore was thus minded, did I use lightness? I was going to come, and he even said, I think in the first book, uh, he discussed it a little bit, whether he would come in simplicity and love and in kindness and tenderness, or whether he would have to come with the rod, the sword. Uh, would he have to come in heaviness? And here he's saying it again. Did I use lightness, or the things that I purpose, do I purpose according to the flesh, that with me there should be yes, yes, and no, no? He explains that. But as God is true, our word toward you was not yes and no. He says, do you want us to be... Now, Christ said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. In other words, don't be duplicitous. If you mean it, say it, and say it the way you mean it. Uh, don't be forked-tongued, double-minded. So the yes and the yes and the no and the no meant that as the way Christ put it. But here he's using it a little bit differently. He says, but as God is true, our word toward you was not yes and no. For the Son of God, Emmanuel of Christ, who was a preached among you by us, even by me and Silvanus and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him was yes. So it wasn't a yes and no deal. It was all the way through positive, always yes. Now, how did he approach them at the beginning of chapter 1? Very lovingly, very kindly, very uh, diplomatically. He started this book the same way. And he's saying, we always want to be able to be positive and preach hope, joy, love, happiness to you. So it's always yes, yes, win-win, we might say today. Yes, on both sides. And yet, because of some attitudes and so on, it was difficult. And sometimes he had to say, no, <laughs> didn't want to, didn't want to have to do that. But he says, it's always been positive. It's always been yes. It's always been God is there to forgive you. He's there to love you. He's there to help you. He's there to encourage you, to deliver you. It's always been yes, yes, yes. It's only when we turn and say no to God that the ministry has to turn and say no to us. Don't go there. For all the promises of God in Him are yes. All the promises He makes to us are positive. You can go through the whole Bible, and every good and perfect gift comes from God in heaven and every one of the promises that he gives us are beautiful promises. It is only if we won't do our part that he says, I can't give you all those things if you don't do what I ask you to. But God wants us in a positive frame of mind. 
he is not negative in his nature and in what he promises us and what he delivers to us. Who is in a negative attitude? Satan, the devil, and his demons, and most humans have this no attitude. The glass is only uh, is, is uh, half-empty kind of an approach to life. God doesn't approach life that way. He is yes, yes. He is, I'll give you every blessing I can think of if you'll just follow me. And he is positive toward us. I will see you through. I will never depart from you or leave you. I'll always be there for you. The only question is, will we be there for him? So why do we get negative? Why do we think, oh, this will never happen? God will never bless. God will never do this. Yes, he will. <coughs> He's promised it all the way through. Do we believe it? Do we go forward in faith knowing that it will happen? That's what faith is. Trusting God implicitly to do what he says he will do. And he says here, as God is true, our word toward you was not yea and nay, it was yea. Yes, yes, all these things are going to happen. The promises of God are yes. And in him, amen, to the glory of God by us. So we pass it along, so be it. It's yea, let's keep it that way. And we'll pass that on to you. Now, he which establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God. He's establishing, we didn't appoint ourselves, we didn't bring ourselves, we didn't decide that PC in the clouds we saw uh, meant preach Christ. It came from God. It didn't come from our own head or our own idea about how we are qualified as teachers. Did it come to Paul that way? No, he didn't decide, I think I'll go be a preacher for God's church. He was killing members as fast as he could. And God struck him down and says, quit it, Paul. You're going to be blind until you understand that I want you to be a preacher in the church of God. Now, that must have come as quite a shock, <laughs> you know? <laughs> well, I was just on my way down here to Damascus to find some Christians and kill them. And uh, you struck me down and said, go there and preach Christ to them. Now, that's quite a reversal. Now, God doesn't uh, allow us to set ourselves up as teachers in his church. He is the one who anoints us, he said, and that is God, who has also sealed us and given them the earnestness or the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. Now, it talks about God sealing the 144,000 there in Revelation 7 and 14, and then those who would hurt God's people. It says, go through, and those who are sealed, get be sure they're sealed, don't hurt them. Now, what is that seal? We know it among kings, or uh, even in a modern way, 
as a stamp of approval. This this is my word, and they they had a ring, a signet ring that they stamped something with in clay, and sealed it, and said, "This is official. This is my word." Uh, people don't believe you today, so you have to go to a notary and get a notary seal on it that this is your word. If they saw you sign it, and you didn't have a gun to your head when you signed it, so. All he's saying here is God has put his seal upon us. Every one of you here who's baptized and is serving God and following his way has been sealed. It's like God has stamped his signet in your forehead. That's where he says he puts it. That's where your mind is, right behind your forehead. So he's sealed you. That makes you pretty special. And to those whom he sealed, he says, yes, yes, not no. Now, we sometimes struggle because we see how weak, how small, how pitiful, how sinful we can be, how easy it is to be idolatrous and self-righteous and all those things. And so we can easily get down on ourselves saying, man, I'm just not making it. Well, we do need to recognize our lacks and our faults so that we can overcome. You you can't overcome something if you don't know you got it. So you have to understand your problems in order to overcome them. But it's all about attitude, because we all have problems. We all have sins. We all have wrong attitudes. I don't mean all the time, but I mean we, we do. We, we get there. And God says, don't get down and start feeling sorry for yourself like I'm not going to make it. You are fighting to win. You fight the good fight with the intention of winning, not in worrying about losing. You know, if you're fighting in a prize fight or a baseball game, if your attitude when you take the field is, I know we're going to lose, then chances are pretty sure you're going to lose. <laughs> because you cannot play or fight with all your might and all your capacity if you've got this negative approach. It has to be positive. So God expects us to be positive about things. And then when we do see our faults and our problems and our difficulties, we don't say, oh, I'm not going to make it. We get on our knees and say, God, help me make it. Give me more of your spirit. Give me more of your strength. Give me your insights, your knowledge, your understanding, your wisdom. Help me fight the good fight and win. It's all yes, yes. There's no room for negative attitudes. Toward God, toward yourself, or toward each other. There's no room for it. You get rid of it. Can it. Throw it away. Bury it. Forget it. Move on. Yes. So he sealed us, put his stamp of approval, or his stamp of ownership, if you will, on us. We were bought with a price, so now he owns us. 
the price being Christ's death and resurrection. So he's given us the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. It's a down payment. We don't have the Spirit of God in the way that he does, in that he is Spirit. He has given us a down payment or an earnest in our minds combined with that human spirit within us to allow us to begin to think and understand like God. Now, doesn't he say that unless God opens our minds, we simply cannot understand spiritual things? You might understand, I mean, you might read the Bible and you might get something out of it, but you can't understand the plan and the purpose of God and the true doctrines of God, all of them, without His Spirit opening your mind. He has to open it. No man can come except he be called of God. So we need to truly be thankful, brethren, that God looked down to each one of us individually, personally, specifically, and opened that mind by the power of His Spirit so that we might understand His way. And we've said this in different ways many times over the years. You've experienced trying to open mind people's minds to truth. And you can't get there. You can't do it. You can explain it till you're red in the face or blue in the face, and they won't get anything but angry and stomp away. They just can't see it unless God turns the switch. So when you think, well, maybe God doesn't pay much attention to me and God doesn't do for me or God doesn't hear me, hey, he knows you. He knows you intimately. He is the one who flipped the switch. He's the one that gave you his spirit. He's the one who combined it at the time of the laying on of hands after baptism with the human spirit and cause you to begin to grow as a babe in Christ toward his kingdom. Now, after you realize you have a child on the way, how many of you have ever forgotten that? You're pregnant. I doubt anybody's ever forgotten it. It's always on the mind of mothers, maybe especially and father, that there's a baby developing there. That may not show and may not kick around much at the first few months, but you never forget it's there. And you alter your practices, you alter your diet, what you drink, what you eat, you change some of your routines. Maybe you exercise more. Maybe you're a little more careful about some of the things you do because you want to preserve and protect that child until it can be born. Now, we're the children of God in the womb, and he is watching over us very carefully to see that we're born into his kingdom. He has not forgotten you whatsoever. You are very, very much in his mind and in his consciousness. There aren't very many, but he is called. And out of those, many have already turned away and not endured 
and gone right back into the world, dog to the vomit of the sow to her wallow, as James says. So you're very special and very specific to God. And I'll tell you what, the ones that are striving to obey Him are very few. Many are still drifting. Many have quit. And only a very, very few are really working at it. And he says in Zechariah 2 that those, that 10%, that's all it is, will come to finish his work and that no one will hurt them because they are the apple of his eye. Now, the apple of your eye is the one you're watching on the tree waiting for it to get ripe. That one you picked out. It's nicer. It doesn't have any wormholes. It's it's growing good. It's beginning to turn color. And you hope the birds don't get it. Just as God hopes Satan doesn't get us. And that we don't allow him to get us. So we're very, very special in his eyes. Don't you ever, ever forget how special you are in God's eyes. Now, that doesn't mean we need to get egocentric and vain, but we need to be utterly thankful, but not forget it. Realize how special you are and respond to him in a special way so that everything is yes, yes, and there's no nay around. And carry that over to your brothers and sisters in the church. That there be yes, yes, and none of this no business. None of this negativity. Yes, you're there to help them. Yes, you're there to pray for them. Yes, you hope they make it into the kingdom of God. We're not here to criticize each other. It's not what we're here for. Yes, we can recognize things that aren't right sometimes, but how do we respond? With judgment and put them down? Or do we have a very positive attitude and try in any way we can to help them? So he sealed us and give us, given us the earnest of his spirit. Moreover, I call God for a record upon my soul that to spare you I came not as yet to Corinth. He's telling them here, uh, with all that I know that has gone on there and still was going on there, he says, you better consider it a blessing that I haven't gotten there yet. Because I wouldn't have spared you. I would have been very, very tough because of what was going on. And it wasn't yes, yes. Uh, there were problems, serious problems. Not for that we have dominion over your faith, but are helpers of your joy. For by faith you stand. He says, God didn't bring us here to exercise dominion over you or to be hard-nosed or hard toward you. That isn't our purpose. Our purpose is to help your joy and your faith to make you joyful. Now, that's what he's been saying up here and what I've been emphasizing is that everything should be yes, yes, yes. 
between us and God and between us and each other, if at all possible. He says in another place, Be at peace with all men as much as is in you to be. Now, sometimes people simply will not be peaceful, and you cannot be at peace with them because they're always making war. Some direction or another, they're always making war. That's why they call them loose cannons. They just shoot every direction, don't care who it hits. They just keep shooting. So sometimes it's impossible to be at peace. But you should do everything you can. And he was saying, I want to help your joy. I want to make you feel good. And joy is a fruit of the Spirit. And yet because of the way you're doing that does not create joy and peace, I'm going to have to come with the rod. And he didn't want to do that. I don't like to do that. I'd much rather inspire you, encourage you, strengthen you than I had to come hard at you. So you, it, it has to be balanced based on what people do. Now, God is the same way. He's full of joy and peace and love, kindness, mercy. Those are his characteristics. And he says, I want you to be like I am. Be kind and gentle and merciful and loving. Now, if we cannot come to have those qualities, he says, I will not be merciful and kind and joyful and loving to you. Same thing Paul's saying. When Christ comes back, he's going to be carrying a two-edged sword, at least the second time. First to get his saints, and the second time to put down the earth. There's going to be a lot of bloodshed. And then he is going to put some in the lake of fire because they simply won't say yes. they got to be negative and say no. So God himself, if we do not respond to him the way he wants us to, will destroy us. It's not that he is the one doing the destruction. It's our thinking and our activities that cause us not to be able to be a part of his kingdom. So, with him, when the lake of fire comes, it will be a merciful killing, a mercy killing, if you will. God will but not be angry at that time. He will be very, very sad that there are some who simply will not respond to him and follow his way, and rather than let them pollute the universe and be unhappy and miserable and full of hatred and bitterness themselves, he will mercifully put them out of their misery. But it will hurt him a great deal. Because he so loved everyone on earth that he gave his son. And he's going to save most. But there will be, inevitably, some weeping and gnashing of teeth. And let's not be one of those. Let's be merciful and loving and giving and forgiving. And if we do and don't cause or take offense, then we are getting to where we're thinking more like God. So let me, as a minister, be a helper of your joy. 
Don't make me come down on you. I don't want to. It's no fun. Chapter 2 then. But I determined this with myself, that I would not come to you again in heaviness. He says, I've been guarding against my attitude. I've been hearing these things that I know are going on. And I told myself, don't go down there and blow them to pieces. Come in love and kindness and consideration. But he was having trouble. He was, he was wrestling with that because they weren't being what they ought to be. He wanted them to be obedient and he could come and spread joy and happiness and love and kindness and, and everybody could have a good time instead of much sorrow and looking at their shoes while he climbed all over them. I didn't want to come with heaviness. For if I make you sorry, who is he then that makes me glad? But the same which is made sorry by me. <laughs> I wanted to come and you received me with love and joy and happiness and Hello, Paul, it's good to see you. Slap him on the back, give him a hug or a holy kiss, whatever it was. And that's the way he wanted it to be. So I, if I make you sorry or uncomfortable by the things I have to say, you're the ones that are supposed to be making me glad too. You know, he says, nobody's going to be happy. <laughs> I was I was wanting to bring you happiness. I was wanting you to bring me happiness. I wanted it to be a joyful reunion, but looks like it's going to be tough. Who makes me glad? But the same which is made sorry by me. I mean, I'm depending on you to help and pick me up, and if I can't help and pick you up, looks like we're all going down the tubes together here. And I wrote this same to you lest when I came I should have sorrow from them of whom I ought to rejoice. You notice that a lot of times when you go to a feast, even back decades ago and worldwide, and it was such a happy time for everybody to get together at the feast. And they're meeting new people and how seeing people they've known before and oh I haven't seen you in a year and it's so good to see you and we hug and we kiss and we laugh and we uh, just enjoy seeing each other. And then that's the way he wanted it to be. He says, I ought to rejoice, having confidence in you all, that my joy is the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears. Now he's talking about the first, the book of First Corinthians. He was so troubled by what he heard, and it hurt his emotions and feelings so much, that he wrote that book with tears. Not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have more abundantly to you. He says, I was correcting you in love. It hurt me to have to do it the way I did it. And it was pretty powerful there in some parts in 1 Corinthians. Just don't, don't make me do that again. Please, you know, get things squared away so we don't have to go through that. But if any have caused grief, 
He has not grieved me, but in part, that I may not overcharge you all. So he says, there may be some individuals that have brought me grief, but I don't want to have to come in and drop it on all of you. Maybe just on those that are causing. Uh, and I, I don't want to go over the top with you if you're not the one causing the problem. So he'd already mentioned in 1 Corinthians that there were certain ones that were causing divisions. I think he, even, he may have even named some of them. He does in some of his writings anyway. Those who are causing trouble for him, like Alexander the coppersmith, he mentions somewhere back here, and others. So he says, I don't, I don't want to have to land on you all. It's like the old story ahead of the, the preacher, Protestant church, and he went up there to preach one day, and there's only one there. Just a farmer sitting in the front row. Nobody else in the whole church, not one farmer. Must have been a Southern Baptist preacher. Anyway, he romped and stomped and railed and threatened hell on any unbelievers and any sinners and this and that. Sermon was over and he went down to speak to the farmer. Farmer says, well, he says, you know, if I only have one cow show up for dinner, I don't dump the whole load on them. <laughs> he felt pretty well dumped on there. So Paul's saying, I don't want to dump the whole load on all of you, uh, but you're, you're putting me in a position where if I speak to you publicly, I have no choice but to go ahead and tell it like it is. You may not all be guilty, but you're going to suffer. Verse 6, sufficient to such a man, and he's, he's leading up to something we're about to get to here. Sufficient to such a man is this punishment, which was inflicted of many. Now, <clears throat> there was one man there, apparently, who was committing incest of some kind. It's been talked about whether it was his, uh, his, his stepmother or just who it was that he was having the affair with. But they had all imbibed of that and were saying, well, you know, that's okay. They were from a very immoral uh, background and uh, so they were letting it go on. But he wrote and said the man ought to be booted out because of it. He hadn't repented of it and uh, that they should have nothing to do with him until he repented. But the the affliction came down on many, see, because they were approval approving or condoning what was going on. He had to get after them all. <clears throat> then he goes on, so that contrarywise, you ought rather to forgive him and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. Now here had been a man with an egregious sin in the church. They were doing nothing about it. But then after Paul romped and stomped in 1 Corinthians, the man repented. He stopped that. Didn't do that anymore. But they, having finally been convinced that they should have nothing to do with him because of what he was doing, when he stopped it, they still wouldn't have anything to do with it. Now, that's ungodly in itself. 
Why do you and I go cry out to God when we make a mistake and ask for his forgiveness so that he'll continue to be mad at us from now on? Is that why we go and ask him for forgiveness and mercy? No. We expect and hope that if we come and say, Father, I've stopped that, please be merciful and kind and forgiving to me, we expect him to do that. Don't we? Now, if we expect it of God, should we not expect it of each other? Huh? He says, if you are forgiving and merciful, I will forgive you. If you are not forgiving and merciful, I will not forgive you. It's that simple. It's that simple. Now, here we have a case of that where this man quit what he was doing, didn't sleep with his stepmother or whoever it was anymore, and then they would not accept him back and forgive him. Now, he doesn't like that. Paul didn't like that at all. Are you going to cause this person to be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow? Are you going to hold this against him for the rest of his life and never admit him again? as a loving brother in the church because he had a problem that he overcame. Now, if he'd still been doing it, they would keep him away. But when he quit it, they were supposed to accept him back. So if somebody repents, you know, it, it doesn't really do any good to feel conscience before God and feel bad about doing something and asking forgiveness and then going ahead and keep on doing it? What good does that do? Because you're just always in a bad conscience, always hoping for forgiveness. Now, if you quit what you're doing that's bothering your conscience, then you can ask for forgiveness and expect it to be given, and God to put you back in His good graces. Because you stopped it. Now, this guy had stopped it. So he says, why are you still treating him like an outcast? He's going to get all over him here. Are you going to give him so much sorrow that he gives up on the kingdom of God because you won't forgive him of the sin that he had? And people are that way, especially with moral things. Uh, any sin is forgivable except the sex sin. That's the way our society generally works. You can be forgiven of lying or stealing or whatever, but if it's sex, oh my... That's the worst thing. Well, it is a bad thing for, to have sex sins. And it affects people in a bad way. But no sin is worse than another sin in terms of God and His forgiveness and whether He is merciful or not. Sin is sin. Transgression of the law. Any of the ten. Doesn't matter. Well, this one happened to be one of those that makes the Methodists and the Baptists get all up irate. And apparently the Church of God. He says, Wherefore I beseech you that you would confirm your love toward him. He quit what he was doing. Accept him back and confirm your love and tell him, We're so thankful that you stopped doing that and I love you, I still love you, and I'll always love you. 
as God will always love us. And I'm so thankful that you repented, and now you're back among us. If they do indeed repent. For to this end also did I write, that I might know the proof of you, whether you be obedient in all things. I told you to put him away. You did that. Now I'm telling you to accept him back and love him, and you don't want to do that. So whatever I tell you, you want to do the opposite. That's the way human beings are with God. And whatever he says, human beings want to go the other way. Our nature is that. Then he says, To whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For if I forgive anything, to whom I forgive it for your sakes, forgave I it in the person of Christ. He says, I represent Christ, and if I forgive a sin, then Christ is forgiving that sin as well. Because he had prayed to Christ about it, and whether or not that person was at the point where it could be forgiven, and we could move on, and yes, yes. Notice, lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. If you're unforgiving toward somebody and you keep pinning him down, saying what he did three months, six months, ten years ago, uh, that is satanic. That is one of the things he likes to do, is keep bringing something up, even though it's way in the past. It's done. It's finished. If it's yesterday or ten years ago, it doesn't matter. It's done. Forget it and move on. Now, if the conduct continues, you can't do that. But here, the contact, I mean, the, uh, the conduct had changed. But Satan can get an advantage of us. That's one of his devices. Unforgiveness is something that he's big with. He does not forgive anything. And if we don't forgive, then who is our father? If you think like Satan, you react like Satan, Christ told the Pharisees, he's your God, whether you know it or not. Anybody who is an accuser of the brethren is satanic. An accuser of the brethren is satanic. They are following their father, the devil. That's what Satan does to us every day before the throne of God. Don't be like Satan. <coughs> we are not ignorant of what he does. Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, and a door was opened to me of the eternal, I had no rest in my spirit because I found not Titus, my brother, brother in Christ, brother in the ministry. But taking my leave of them, I went from there to Macedonia. He was he was frustrated. He wanted to see Titus. Titus had gone on for some reason, and he didn't get to see him. And it, it, it really bothered Paul when he didn't get to sit down and be with Titus for a while. Now, thanks be to God which always causes us to triumph in Christ, 
and makes manifest the Savior of his knowledge by us in every place. I find it interesting there, he says, he, he left off and says, now forgive this person, bring him back. And now I went to see Titus and he wasn't there and that upset me. <laughs> Did he get all nervous and stay upset? No, he says, thanks be to God, which always causes us to have victory. God sees us through. God makes it, turns it out right. How many times have you seen things go south and God turned it around and made it right? In your life, we all have. And he saw it in his ministry. So he causes us to triumph in Christ and makes manifest the savor of his knowledge by us in every place. So he has given us things that we can savor. You know, when you taste food... Sometimes you think, ooh, uh, let's move on. And sometimes you taste food, ah, you savor it. That's good. Mmm, give me some more of that. Well, we should savor his knowledge. And wherever Paul went, he was hoping that people would appreciate and enjoy and be able to digest what he was bringing them. The spiritual food. <clears throat> For we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ. Through Christ, we become a sweet savor to God. He says back in Isaiah that he wants us to be a sweet scent arising to him. That we are living in such a way that when he looks at us or sniffs the air... Ah, there's a sweet smell. Now, how does his how do his nostrils react at most of what he sniffs down here on this earth? I take it he probably doesn't breathe very deeply through his nose most of the time, because most of what's going on down here is a stench in his nostrils, and we're the only thing that is a sweet savor, and he sorts the sweet scent of our conduct in our lives out from the stench of the world and says, ah, oh, there's one that smells good to me. I want to savor that. And that's why he uses terms like apple of his eye. We need to be a sweet scent, a sweet savor to God. In a world of unforgiveness, of anger, of hate, of theft, of everything you can name that is ungodly. Those who are seeking to follow his way just stick out to him, and he can't help but savor that, because it's so rare. So rare. But it's a sweetness that comes through Christ. As we obey and serve and follow him and act and think like him, then that sweet savor comes through Christ in us. In them that are saved and in them that perish. He explains that then. To the one, we are the savor of death unto death, and the other, the savor of life unto life. The dead look at us as dead. 
They don't want anything to do with us. But when we have someone who has the Spirit of God and someone else with the Spirit of God, then the Savior is of life to life. And we need to be encouraging life in one another instead of discouragement and frustration in one another. We sharpen each other. We lift each other up. He wanted to be a helper of our joy. Paul did. And we need to be the helpers of each other's joy. Encouraging, strengthening. It doesn't do any good usually to point out something to people. You know, they usually know. (laughs) They already know what their problem is. People sometimes uh, get all over fat people. I've used this before. Fat people know 24-7 they're fat. You haven't told them a thing they didn't know. All you did was discourage them. Tell them, ah, yeah, you're fat. You'll always be that. Nothing will change. Now, that's, that's real encouragement there. Thank you. No, we should be a savor of life to each other. And who is sufficient for these things? For we are not as many which corrupt the word of God. We're not like that. That's not the way we want to be. But as of sincerity, but as of God, in the sight of God, speak we in Christ. So he says, closing this chapter out, I'm here to tell you about Christ. I'm here to tell you about the answer to our problems. If we go to Christ, things can be happy and joyful and good. And Christ in us, coming out for each other, makes us all that way. So he says, let's treat each other with love and kindness in the spirit of Christ, not in the spirit of Satan and the world, of meanness, of hate, of accusation, but of love and gentleness and kindness toward one another. If we do that, then our joy will be helped. All right, let's stop there today.